Welcome everyone to our fourth episode of Long Tones. Uh, I'm Josh Landers from J. Landers Brass in New York City uh, with my co-host Steve Johnson or Virtuosity in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, we have a special guest tonight, John Snell from Bob Reeves Brass, who will be uh, you know, talking with us here. John has been a vital member of the Bob Reeves Brass team since 2001, where he is a dedicated craftsman and also a co-owner in the company. Uh, in addition to his craftsmanship and ownership, John is also the dedicated host of three incredible podcasts, The Other Side of the Bell, The Trombone Corner, and The Horn Signal. John, thank you very much for joining us this evening. I'm going to kick this off and hand it over to Steve. Steve, how are you, man? Oh, I'm hanging in there. How about you, Josh? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Great. John, thanks for thanks for joining us tonight. My, my pleasure. It's yeah. an honor. So we're gonna we're gonna put you through the paces here. We're gonna talk about a few uh, few topics here. We start off kind of talking about the Bob Reeves vision for mouthpieces, and then kind of transitioning over to chatting in the brass world on the West Coast and beyond, um, and then do some talk about the future of mouthpiece and brass technology and the industry there. And then uh, we'll take some Q and A from folks listening in and uh, who've submitted questions ahead of time. So. Um, so let's do it, Josh. You wanna you wanna kick things off here with uh, our first topic? Yeah, uh, John. What what's the the vision with Bob Reeves? And if you just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and and the vision. So I mean, it's real simple, and it's funny because we're known as a mouthpiece maker, but the vision, kind of like you mentioned, Josh, is is more than that, and and it's quite simple. It's we our goal is that the player that walks in the door will sound better after when they're when they're leaving as simple as that and uh the reason why it's bigger than mouthpieces is a lot of our customers come to us for a bob reeves mouthpiece and that's not the fix they need uh, it may be an alteration to their mouthpiece it may be a valve alignment like you brought up um and i mean in a few instances it may be they just need to go get a good teacher or practice you know um and uh and part of that obviously is our stock mouthpiece line, which again, thankfully, Bob's been making for 50 years and has been, you know, in all over in orchestras and studios and big bands and whatnot. Um, however, it's like, you know, we don't sell mouthpieces. You know, we don't, we, uh, we don't, when a customer comes in the door, our, our job is not to have them walk out with a 42S, you know, if that's what ends up working, great. But, uh, you know, we consider ourselves more of like a guide, you know, uh, Samwise Ganji to your Frodo or Sancho Panza, uh, Panza to your uh, Don Quixote, although not quite as quirky, that sort of thing. You know, we're, we're there to guide you along the way, maybe educate you about the equipment, educate you about the acoustics. Um, and, you know, and sometimes Bob was known to give practicing advice or life advice or diet advice, you know, <laughs> pretty much anything that will get you closer to your goal, whatever that may be in music. What do you think is the main misconception that people have when they walk through the door and they say, I want a mouthpiece to do this for me? What, you know, where does, where does the mouthpiece end and the player begin and vice versa? I mean, where does that relationship happen? Wonderful question and something that, I mean, do we have all day, all week? I mean, the short answer is you need to look at everything as a system, right? Um, the player, the mouthpiece, the horn, and really the, the environment, the room. You know, um, and that's one that a lot of players don't take into consideration. And, um, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard about the, you know, the mouthpiece honeymoon and things like that, where something worked great and two days later it doesn't. Well, I mean, I have a lot of theories on that, but one of the theories is you play test it 
in the room here or at a you know music store and or at ITG in a conference room, and then all of a sudden you go home and that same piece of equipment is different. Well, the equipment didn't change, you didn't change, the trumpet didn't change, what changed is your environment. Um, so, I mean, the, the thing is, there are so many variables that it is hard to really kind of steer a course of what needs to be changed. When is it me? When is it the mouthpiece? Uh, when is it the horn? That sort of thing. And that's one of the things we do. That's my job is to say, well, have you tried this? Have you tried this? Uh, when does this happen? When does it not happen? Things like that. Um, but to kind of get back to your original question about like kind of the myths or things that where I think people mostly go wrong is equipment can be very counterintuitive. You know, so what we think as brass players, meaning like getting air through the horn or doing this or that, um, doesn't necessarily equate to the the equipment that you need, meaning, you know, how many mouthpieces have you guys drilled open that then end up in a drawer because the player says, now you ruined my mouthpiece. I mean, there's some some great stories we have um, real quickly. One, uh, Irv Gold, uh, Goodman, Benny Goodman's brother. You know, everyone knows Benny Goodman. He, he had a trumpet playing uh, 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 brother. And he was a good customer, uh, you know, 40 years ago and said, you know, he needed a 25 hole in his mouthpiece and he'd come in and tell Bob exactly what to make. And Bob would make it, no questions asked. And then there's one point he was having problems with endurance. And so he said, look, Bob, I trust you. You make whatever you want. Don't tell me. So Bob made him a mouthpiece and he put a 28 bore in it. Didn't tell him. Right. Or plays it in the mouth in the, in the shop. Plays great. Goes home, plays it on a gig, plays great. Calls Bob three, four days later, said, Bob, this is the best mouthpiece I've ever played. I got all the endurance back. When you see where this is going, you guys are smiling. So after about a week, Irv calls Bob up again. He's like, Bob, you got to tell me what hole you put in. What what bore is this? What bore is this? Bob's like, I'm not telling you. And uh, and finally, he twisted Bob's arm enough, and Bob said, Well, it's a 28. Irv freaked out. He's like, I can't believe it. I can't play a 28 hole. I have to play a 25. Comes into the shop the next day, has Bob board out to, you know, 25, plays two notes on it and said, Bob, you ruined my mouthpiece. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this was the 60s, or early 70s. There was different times. I'm sure some words were exchanged, but suffice it to say, he was never invited back in the shop again. But that's the thing, you know, the, the, the mental game that we as brass players play just because of how either we're taught or how we just things physically feel without necessarily knowing how the acoustics of the equipment work. So, you know, that's one of the biggest issues I would say we run into. I mean, there's plenty, but that would be the biggest one is how things feel versus what you actually need and keeping an open mind about it. An open mind is so important when you're, when you're sizing out things like that. I mean, I don't know about other players, but when I was growing up, it was almost like an aspiration to get to that one C or get to that one and a quarter C size you know, it's you're being rewarded for uh, hard practice. You'll go to the bigger mouthpiece, but not everybody needs that. And and, and that's it's really kind of sometimes you have to do a lot of convincing to 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 make that to point uh, to a, to a customer. That's exactly it. I mean, we the yeah mindset is one mm -hmm. thing, and then also just where we get our information from. You know, not that we shouldn't trust our trumpet teachers and our professors, but right. the uh, you know uh, with you know, some exceptions there are, you know, I know some professors and teachers that are very well versed in acoustics and, and equipment, but a lot of them have no idea. You know, they've, they only know what they've been taught and they were taught start on a seven C move to a five C move to a three C move to a one and a half C yeah. and then 
bigger and bigger. And that's all they know. And um, it really ties one hand behind your student's back if you're doing that and not at least have giving them an open mind and having them at least experiment a little bit, because that's just like saying you need to go and wear a size nine shoe or a size 12 shoe or Michael Jordan size shoe. You know, it's that's not what you need individually, the connection between you and your instrument. You know, you need to find what works for you. Yep. Absolutely. What goes into your process of making a quality mouthpiece? Like one thing that's always been like really incredible for me to see with the mouthpieces that you guys produce is your junction between rim and cup. And, you know, if you didn't know it was a two piece mouthpiece and you looked at it, you know, it's like, wow, that's a that's a one piece piece mouthpiece. That junction is beautiful. You interchange some rims. The junction lines up a lot of times, so you can mix and match some variation within, you know, rim and under part size. But but what goes into what? What's some of the way you guys make mouthpieces? I I know you guys do a lot of handwork. Um, yeah, almost all. Can you can you can you can you kind of walk me through what you guys do there? Yeah, and I mean, let me first by prefacing that you know we're very results based. So if you walk in with a no name, no stamp, five dollar off of Amazon or eBay mouthpiece, and that sounds and play great, plays great for you, that mouthpiece is no better than a $200 mouthpiece that we would make by hand in the back. You know, It's just because our mouthpieces are made well, made by hand, doesn't mean it's right for you. However, there are benefits to a handmade mouthpiece. And um, one of the things like you mentioned is the match between rim and cup, the flexibility of being able to look and feel and smell the brass, which, uh, you know, not to go down a, a, a machining path, because uh, that, you know, usually just kind of glosses people over. <laughs> but, you know, most mouthpieces, a vast majority of mouthpieces today are made by computer, you know, on a CNC lathe, where you go and you push start and a thing traces the mouthpiece and two minutes later, something pops out, maybe five minutes on some of the higher end CNC models, you know. Uh, but I mean, they're basically, you know, push and go all done by a computer and no human touches the mouthpiece. And, you know, if it's like an iPhone or a cord or something like, you know, just a, a an important object, that's one thing. But like, this is a musical instrument and, you know, musicians take a lot of slack because we lose jobs to soulless computer synthesized music. But on the same token, a lot of musicians are using soulless computer made tools you know and and you can hear the difference you know you can hear the difference in a handmade trumpet and the craftsmanship and the bending of the metals and i you know you can hear the same in a mouthpiece um the way it's balanced you can make adjustments per mouthpiece on the spot based on how it's turning out that you can't do if you push go and two minutes later a thing pops out on the parts catcher and to go into the automatic polisher. Um, so our process hasn't changed in 55 years and really kind of starts uh, with Carol Provence before, before that, who was Bob's mentor. Uh, so and even some of the tools we use are 70, you know, 80 years old at this point wow. uh, and still sharp, still as good as the day they were made. And so that means if you bought a Proviance four-star K4 in 1948, it's made on the same tool today and is going to play exactly the same, assuming Carol didn't do some little handwork on it, you know? Wow, amazing. So, I mean, one, there's something to be said about that. And then two, yeah, you know, hand doing the shank, um, like... I mean, we make sleeves here. There is the ac most accurate sleeves in the world. We control things to a ten thousandths of an inch. And while we can do that on CNC, it's just frankly easier to do it by hand. 
And, you know, we, we live in a technological society where people think, oh, you laser measure and do this and that. Why would you dare get your hands dirty and do something that couldn't nearly be as accurate as what you can do on a computer? You know, and it's like, meanwhile, we're in the back trying to figure out how to center a mouthpiece that was made on a CNC because we can't even thread it because it's not <laughs> on, on any one axis. You know, that's so like, true, man. Yeah. Oh, and it's like, yeah, like, man, you guys, you know, you're, you're talking smack about us, you know, old folks doing, uh, you know, custom hand stuff. And like, we literally have to send customers back with their mouthpiece and say, like, see if you can find another one, because this is just a useless hunk of metal. We can't even center it, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's just misconceptions out there about, you know, we want the shiniest, newest thing. And there's something to be said for old world craftsmanship. And, you know, Bob, when he first uh, to, to get into his um, apprenticeship, he was a tool maker, which in the grand scheme of things, tool makers are the, mm -hmm. you know, top of the top of the top. Um, uh, his, his entrance exam was he had to take a piece of iron, a hunk of iron with just a T-square and a file and make it perfectly square cube within a ten thousandth of an inch yep. by hand. You know, and he could do that by hand. Obviously, he passed. And then when you see a mouthpiece that even the outer diameter is not even within a few thousandths of an inch, yeah. you're thinking like, yeah. So that's the kind of machining that Bob instilled in us mm. uh, that Brett and I and the rest of the folks here are carrying on. So when you say say handmade, just to, to, to clarify for, for people who might not know, um, they're using cutters. So it's a it's a steel form with a reverse profile of the cup of the, and rim of the mouthpiece, right? So it's in the lathe, the, the brass is spinning, and you're going in there with a cutter, which is that shape. Um, I, I just wanted to, so they're, they're really doing it by hand um, for, for people who haven't seen mouthpiece making videos or your videos. I know you guys put uh, some really awesome videos of Brett carving mouthpieces. Uh, I know you guys did some of like the sterling silver trombone stuff that, you had a really great video series of that, but that's, you guys were really hand-making, like, like, wow, like, I remember seeing one of those videos where you melted down the silver and cast it and then machined it and thread it. It was like, wow, like, you guys are incredible. That's really hand-done. We're doing that again. We're making a, a mini trumpet mouthpiece for my King Liberty out of, out of Sterling. Oh! So that's, that's going to be the next project here. So and there'll be a video about that. That's a that's a fun little horn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the folks listening or watching, yeah, check out. I mean, on our Instagram and also on our YouTube channel, we have plenty of videos of us showing how we make. You know, uh, the the stock mouthpieces are made using form tools one at a time on a manual lathe. But even those, like even the ones that we're using form tools, like we're hand finishing. Uh, you know, part of the finishing process is all done by hand. And, uh, and then certainly the custom mouthpieces are hand carved, you know, the cups and the, and the rims are hand carved. Uh, so yeah, check those things out. Cause it's, wow. yeah, it's like, uh, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> John, I'm, I, I, I want to, I want to ask you another question here and I think it's a good chance to kind of, uh, set the record, you know, where we want it anyways. Uh, can we talk about the theory behind the sleeves? And when, why those are so important, and why they they were you know kind of groundbreaking when they, when you, then they came on, and and what, what what's that all about? Yeah, so the gap for I mean from just a very basic for folks who haven't even heard about it, there's a gap on just about every trumpet between the end of the mouthpiece and the beginning of the lead pipe. It's a chamber, 
inside. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as we know from hundreds of years of acoustical studies, the most important parts of a brass instrument, and specifically on trumpet, would be the first few inches, you know, which would be the mouthpiece and into the lead pipe, the last few inches, which would be the bell flare, and then halfway through, which is where usually in the valve cluster somewhere, right? Um, and so any sort of bore adjustment throughout the instrument is going to affect intonation, response, uh, projection, uh, slotting, all those kinds of things, right? And uh, what Bob discovered through his acoustical research, uh, guided uh, primarily with uh, uh, Bill Cardwell, who was, you know, Cliff Blackburn and several other people studied with him, K.O. Skinsness from Stombe, uh, very influential acoustician in the brass world. Uh, but through Bob's acoustical studies, but then also his just general knowledge from working with Proviance and working at the Benj factory in Burbank, he started putting these pieces together um, that, um, that the gap had an effect. And um, not getting into all the history, we do have some blog posts on our website that get into the history and those puzzle pieces. But long story short is Bob started experimenting. And uh, he found that a perceptive player can feel as little as a four thousandths of an inch change in the gap which is, I mean, that's just how much pressure you put in. If you get a little oomph when you're twisting your mouthpiece in, mm -hmm. that changes four thousandths, uh, if not even a little bit more of the penetration of the mouthpiece into the receiver. Uh, but certainly like the variation we see in shank sizes among manufacturers and just among models, I mean, that distance is changing, you know, 30 seconds, that's even 16th of an inch, uh, which is huge, huge, uh, can hugely impact how, the mouthpiece plays with that horn. Um, so yeah, his solution was the sleeve system, which he got a patent for, and I should know this, in the early 70s, 71, I think, or 72. Uh, and the crazy thing is, I mean, he was doing making those changes then and helping players. And there's still like this, I don't know, perception out there among some people that it's still voodoo, you know? Um, and we're as practical as can be. We don't say you have to get your mouthpiece cut for sleeves. We don't say you have to buy a set of, you know, 28 sleeves to really dial this in. We say, take a piece of notebook paper, put it lengthwise along your shank and see what happens, mm -hmm. you know? And if it, that's called the Reeves paper trick. And we have a, another great video on that. Does, does that have a patent on it too? Was it that? <laughs> does that have a patent too? Uh, well, it should. We, I think we, it's trademark. Trademarked. Okay, good. At least you protected <laughs> yeah, it. If it's not, I have my patent attorney on the phone. It's going to be by the end of the week. Uh, Perfect. <laughs> you know, and that's the thing. Like, I'll have arguments with guys on the phone that won't refuse to put a piece of paper on their shank just to try mm -hmm. to see what happens. And nine times out of ten, they call back and say, "Wow, thank you, John. That made it play better. So I need. I know I need to increase the gap." Or they say, "John, it played worse. So now I." Now it's worth experimenting, actually altering your mouthpiece to go further in. Mm -hmm. You know, we never suggest people just shave down their mouthpiece on their own. Um, but it's it's a it's basically what it does it, for us in our process. It's the last step. So you have a horn that you like the sound of uh, that makes you proud. You have a mouthpiece that's comfortable and designed for the job you have to do. And then what the gap does is it gives you this like fine tuning, like on the old analog uh, radios, to get that clarity marrying the horn with the mouthpiece with how you naturally you know what kind of energy you naturally want to put in and when it's when it's on it's it's on you know and you can tell it's like sweet golf swing or tennis swing or you know name your sport 
is it is it just a feel thing or is it or is it actually accomplishing something with you know for example slotting or uh, you know pitch center or something like that is that what can be achieved with the the gap adjustment there the above so uh, I mean I, I say feel because when uh, when the gap is optimal the notes just paint with minimal amount of you know effort um, but it does it, it changes the think of it like the harmonic series like a spring and moving the gap increasing and decreasing the gap can change the distance between the harmonics stretching or um, uh, compressing the spring mm-hmm. um, yeah it's a tuning device right because we're also controlling how far the mouthpiece goes in and out mm-hmm. although it could be minimal I mean if you're moving a mouthpiece out a 64th of an inch that's you know half of what you would pull uh, uh, or twice what uh, what you would pull out on the, on the tuning slide mm-hmm. but that is still an effect it is a tuning device but response intonation slotting, uh, even indirectly, I would say projection, because when people are playing easier, the sound sound goes. Speaking speak of sound, John, you're you're out there on the West Coast, and I'm here in New York. He's up in Boston. We're East Coast guys. What is you know on the West Coast that we don't know about? I mean, like I've always besides you know, in and out. Besides the West Coast, in and out. The West, oh, in and out, man. Oh, you know, you know. I mean, it's, 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 we want to get more controversial than heavy uh, valve caps. In and out is very uh, <laughs> is very divisive. But yeah, I mean, and we could talk about food all day. Um, I mean, West Coast is a it's I mean, it's a very interesting scene. Um, and it's, uh, you know, in fact, I, I get a lot of I do a lot of trumpet therapy here at the shop, <laughs> among my other roles, among the other things I do. Uh, but you know, we have a lot of folks that call to say, you know, hey, I want to move to L.A. and make it in the studios or I want to come out and do, you know. And uh, it's one of those things where, you know, I never want to deter anyone from living their dreams because, uh, you know, the guys I've had on my podcast, you know, John Lewis and Malcolm McNabb and Wayne and like all of those guys wanted to do what they are doing now. And they wouldn't have gotten there if someone said, hey, you can't do it. And they listened to them. Right. Right. Um, That being said, I mean, L.A. is absolutely massive, especially, you know, um, L.A. County is, you know, L.A. City and then L.A. County, there's just tens of millions of people here and not a lot of what I call breath work, you know, uh, meaning if you want to play on a John Williams score, this is the place to do it. Uh, but there's four guys that do it, you know, at least in the trumpet section and eight in the horns and whatever, and they're going to do it for the next 20 or 30 years. So, you know, if you want to come out here and you want to wait in line, come on out, uh, but just be willing to do whatever you need to do until you get there. And one of those things that you have to do is keep your chops in primo condition. Yeah. A lot of good, there's a lot of good players out there. Uh, They come out of the woodwork. You know, I've lived here for 45 years. My father was a professional trumpet player and he had a a, a brass quintet and brass ensemble that players would cycle in and out of. And, you know, there's players after that, when I started working here at the shop, I said, oh, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm from L.A. You know, amazing, amazing players. (laughs) Oh, you're from L.A.? You know, when did you move to town? Oh, I was born here. You know, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a professional musician. You know, it's like there's that many players that you can go a whole career in L.A. and not know everybody. Um, and those are the players that are actually working. And there's probably just as many players that are sitting home or doing substitute teaching or, you know, other things that aren't actually actively on the scene. Um, but it's a beautiful place. I mean, you can go to the surf and go ski in the same day and, you know, have your choice of all the wonderful foods and, and, uh, it's a great hang. And if you like movie stars, you're always going to run into them. And I mean, 
all of that stuff is true. Um, but it's, it's, uh, uh, the, the scene I should mention though, cause I, I mean, I don't want to be pessimistic. The scene has picked up, uh, pandemic, everyone was freaking out. Um, and the studio scene and the TV scene, uh, the recording, the jingles and stuff. Uh, there are some players that remember the old days that said, this is what it was like, you know, in the seventies and early eighties, oh, wow. uh, you know, going from session to session, uh, you know, and now if that's going to be sustainable and of course we're riding that wave right now, everyone's working a lot and now there's the SAG after strike and things are uncertain. So, you know, musicians can never get a good, you know, always get a tough break, but you know, you still have to persevere and hope for the next, uh, next big gig. Uh, but it is, it is like, there's a lot of live playing now, a lot of community groups. So, you know, it's a great place to check out. Do you, do you still think there's, you know, there always used to be the East Coast, West Coast sound and, oh yeah, this guy's playing, you know, West Coast. So he's playing a Colicchio and a Proviance and, uh, you know, uh, East Coast, West Coast. Now that a lot of guys are moving uh, back and forth, or I know I have a lot of friends and great players who lived here in New York for many years who moved out there who are working a lot. And I never really thought of like that East Coast, West Coast sound with them. Um, but do you see, do you see that over there? Cause I, you know, it, I, I was always from the point there's like different schools of thoughts and playing and different sounds. Do you, do you still find that is kind of true coming from where you are in working with p players and mouthpieces and selling instruments and, and, and things? Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think just not in, uh, not just in commercial playing, but I think in classical playing, orchestral playing, uh, you know, thanks to the internet and Spotify and YouTube and all of that stuff. Um, I think just music in general, as a broad statement, you could say is becoming more homogenized, homogenized, yeah. more bland. You know, I mean, at, growing up, I could I could pick Cleveland, Philly, Chicago, Berlin, Vienna, brass section in an orchestra. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd be really hard pressed to do that today. Um, and same thing with like horn section stuff. You hear a horn section on a pop tune. I could say, oh, that's uptown horns. That's the, uh, you know, fattest <laughs> Lou Soloff Brecker and Alan Rubin section. That's the hay horns. That's the Vine Street horns. Like you can't do that as much anymore. Um, partly because of recording techniques, partly because of the music and, but also, I mean, in our line of work, I think also the way they're building instruments. Uh, you know, there's, um, in a lot of ways, mouthpieces and instruments, trumpets especially, are easier to play today, but I don't think they have, the, personally, the character that instruments had 20, 30 years ago. And certainly, you know, you go back to Harry James's time and, yeah. you know, and back when, you know, you play a different con or a Holton or a Blessing or whatever. And like they, if Martin, you know, and they just, the instruments had a character and a soul to them. Um Maybe a little quirky, you know, Queen on Flugel, maybe pitchy, maybe, you know, clunky valves and, you know, certain notes don't slot. But, you know, there was a characteristic soul in the sound that those instruments gave that I don't think we get today. Um, so, yeah. So kind of getting to your answer, I think, because of the Internet, because of and also the sharing of information. You know, you don't just study with the guy who studied from Bacchiano in New York. Right. Now you're online and you're getting you're getting information from all sorts of places. Uh, players tend to kind of do this now i totally agree with you i mean and it's the same thing in the orchestra world too i mean you and you can even expand that out worldwide too you don't even have to do the west coast east coast thing i mean you know you you know even vienna is is very um has always been a very unique sound but i think that that is starting to kind of meld into the um 
mainstream mainstream expected sound that uh, we have here too so and there's a lot of theories on that i mean i mean partly is you know we're listening to music now instead of on a, a home stereo uh, well, most of this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's audio files out there, but you know, we're listening in earbuds, we're listening on the subway, we're listening in the car, and you know, those. I don't say that soul gets lost, but you know, people now are expecting perfection, you know, and partly because of recording techniques. When you go in and you're putting a horn section down, you don't have one mic for the section, and okay, we got to take that take, even though the tenor saxophone sharp and the trumpet clams one of the notes in the lick, you know. So you get people splicing in one note at a time or fixing the pitch, and we're used to hearing perfection, uh, which is great because the equi equipment's following that, but everything's a trade-off. So I do think we're losing out on you know, that fingerprint, that thumbprint of, you know, a, a section or a horn section or a brass section's, you know, soul. Fair point. I'm wondering how that transfers over into the mouthpiece side of things. I mean, you guys are decidedly kind of old school when it comes to the manufacturing processes. Is there anything kind of on the horizon that you see that is going to be, mm, that's going to change the way things go in the future, in the near future? Yeah, great question. And we're doing a lot of that already. Um, you know, Bob's backboards are 6.9, 6.92S, 6.92, the standard backboard. I mean, those are all 50 years old. And so those were designed in Hollywood, one block from Paramount Studios, uh, you know, and a mile from uh, Warner Brothers and the other studios. Uh, you know, players then were playing on tape. They were playing on, I would say, tighter feeling instruments, things like that. Um, today players, especially like lead horns, you think about like the way, uh, Bergeron Yamaha and, uh, even the Bobby shoe used to be like a pea shooter, the 61st, 63 Z. And now the newer models are more open. Mm -hmm. Uh, so thankfully we have more efficient models in our line already, which we've noticed players shifting and shifting. So when I first started working at the shop 20 years ago, it was a lot of 6.9 and 6.92 backboards, which were our bigger backboards, bigger commercial backboards. And now, I mean, there's still a few of those, but a lot more of the 6.92S and the 6.92S L backboards, which are our more efficient ones. Um, and actually, as a response to all that, we designed a new backboard. It's on our, speaking of in and out our, our secret menu. <laughs> we don't have it on the website but people can order it and they have to know someone in order to get one uh but our 19 backboard is a response to the modern horns and also the modern sound that lead and commercial players have to do and uh those have a little bit smaller bore size and it's for players that you know really like an open fluid feel but need the efficiency of an efficient lead backboard um so we did that and then the other the other thing that came out in the last few years is our the dan rosenboom signature mouthpiece uh which actually i think steve points directly to what you're talking about you know dan is one of the top call studio players here in la he was a uh, without going into his whole history but he basically played a 5c and some variations on that he jumped over to a Reeves D cup stock mouthpiece that he played for a few years that he absolutely loved. Uh, but he was, when he was playing live, you know, recording live in the studio with the section, no problems, blending, matching pitch, uh, entrances, things like that. But when things shut down for the pandemic and everyone was striping from home, meaning they'd get a click track and maybe the first trumpet part and they have to record their third or fourth or whatever other trumpet part, mm -hmm. he realized looking at the waveforms that when he was playing, he was slightly delayed. The waveform was just slight, even though he had the click and he's playing along with the first trumpet. And 
it's like, well, I've never had that problem when I'm sitting with a section. And that was because, you know, we as humans can, you know, we can compensate, obviously, when we're playing and we hear and do whatever we need to do to play in time, even if it's subconscious. And when he didn't have the sound of the room and the section there, he realized he was always late. Right. Um, so that's we went to the drawing board. You know, how do we take a D69 that plays great, plays in tune and plays great live? and shift that response up a split second. So when he's playing to a trick, uh, a click to his home computer, it's right there. So that was the boom, uh, the first boom mouthpiece we created, got that. And then uh, after playing that for a year, year and a half, he's like, this this has done things for my playing. You know, you you know, you're onto something when a great player like that comes back to you and say, says, hey, because of this equipment, I could do things that I didn't know I could even do before. Now I want to go into this realm. Like, can we go here? And uh, he and Brett Kendall worked for about six months to develop the Boom Star, which is, I don't want to say it's like the Gen 2 or Gen 3 or Gen 9 or whatever. It's its an evolution <laughs> of the Boom. And the Boom is still a great mouthpiece for certain players as a standalone mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. The Boom Star now is for, I would say, a different kind of set of players that, you know, the response is just instantaneous. It's flexible. And now we're starting to learn from that to apply to other backboards and things that we're doing. Again, for like, if you're playing in a big band or a concert band or an orchestra and you're playing live with people, like the 50-year-old designs that we have are still perfect. Just like a 100-year-old 3C, it's still a 3C. Like it still holds up. However, for those players who are now in these different realms of modern playing, modern technology, we're offering these solutions. You know, trumpet design is also evolving a little bit. Has there been talk between you and Brett about a new type of de- of, of bringing new designs to the to the drawing board? Well, yeah. So, I mean, first of all, we always stay in our territory, meaning we don't. Oh, someone's doing a, a large bore, shortened mouthpiece, different concept. We let them do that. Like they're doing that. So what we don't reinvent the wheel, you know, there's, there's plenty of mouthpiece makers that do that. And, um, you know, it's, it's part of the business, which is fine. You know, when I started uh, the first ITG that I did was probably Fort Worth 2001 or 2002, you know, we were on the stage at, uh, TCU, uh, and there was like five mouthpiece makers, you know, it was us, um, maybe the Storks, Lasky, uh, Terry Warburton and Mark Curry and Mark Curry let, had his stuff set up and he was golfing the whole weekend, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and we all had our little tables and it was very quaint and that's what the industry was. And now today, like we don't even go to ITG because it's such a, uh, I'm going to say circus because ITG is great at a lot of things, but you know, as far as equipment goes, I mean, there's just a million options. And mm-hmm. even if we have something compelling to offer at a show like ITG, by the time someone gets to our booth, they've already, played 89 mouthpieces and they don't know the difference between left and right um so that's the thing like we would much rather stay in our lane do what we know we do well and Mm -hmm. if there is a need for example like the 19 back or or the boom you know something because of recording uh, or technology that needs to be addressed yeah we have that so brett and i have a whole host of designs uh that we are working on some based on Bob's knowledge and what he was working on before he passed, but then also, you know, things that we've discovered uh, just in our own over the last 20 years. Yeah. You guys, you guys are, you're both very smart people as I got to see some of your, your, your magic 
<laughs> in person here. Put on a good show. <laughs> but uh, but seriously though, and uh, the the perfect example is like uh, is our classical series. So for forty five years, people would come in and say, "Hey, I play a Bach one and a quarter C, twenty four backboard, twenty four uh, throat. I need something in the Reeve, you know, Reeves line." And Bob would say, "We don't make anything that big. Go, well, you know, if you want something big and hard to play." go spend 50 bucks on a box and save your $200, right? Because they do that. Um, and then, so the classical series came out about 10 years ago because I hate to say it, Bob was sick of charging people four or $500 to copy a magical three C that they couldn't find another one to play the same. So he said, you know, I'm done with this. I'm just going to have my own rim and cup three C and I can hand them that. And it's a hundred dollars, you know? Um, so we came out with a classical series, because we, Bob was sick of making custom mouthpieces <laughs> uh, for that reason. Um, so, I mean, who knows what the future would bring with that. But, but based on that, we do have the new orchestral line uh, based off the classical series now that Brett has discovered how to make a 24-24 or 25-24 backboard on those larger sizes. That is a compelling solution that if you played a stock 24-24 off the shelf by another manufacturer might have pitch issues or slotting issues, things like that. Mm -hmm. So we feel now after 50 years, we're bringing something compelling awesome. to, to marketplace in that realm because we saw the need, not because we want to copy someone else and all of a sudden just... No, no, of course. You know, so, I mean, yeah, I'll stop there before I get in trouble. <laughs> no, no, it, it, I, think it, I think it's easy to get into trouble because this... Um, you know, there's a, uh, in the last, I don't know, maybe five, 10 years, there's an outpouring of new, you know, it seems like there's a new mouthpiece maker every week. And it's not just limited to brass, obviously, you know, on the woodwind side of things too. It's, it's it, with the, and then I guess to what do we attribute that? Do we attribute that to more access to technology, uh, more examples on, you know, things to just straight up copy? I mean, it, there's, there's a, there's a lot going on there too, but it, it, Sometimes and and it and it's tough because it it does muddy the waters between folks who are just kind of throwing stuff against the wall and hoping it sticks versus you know folks that are actually doing the acoustical studies and and um, you know making actual calculated uh, models and that sort of things. So, well, I mean, my take on that, and again, so I love. I love sports, so I make a lot of sports analogies. I'm terrible at sports, so it works out well. Um, but to me, like this trumpet especially, not so much, maybe horn a little bit, but not certainly not trombone and tuba, but definitely focused on trumpet. I mean, we're like the golfers of the world, right? Um, I mean, <laughs> you go into a music shop, and there's a wall full of trumpet practice aids, Right. You know, you go to any music shop around the world, like find me a, a viola practice aid, find me an oboe practice aid. There might be one or two or something to do this. Or, but I mean, and then not that they're without merit. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. I believe in a lot of those practice aids, but mm -hmm. like trumpet players are, I mean, just because of the nature of the instrument have to have confidence. And we just tend to be insecure about what we have to do. And because of that. Well, it keeps shops like ours in business because they spend a lot on equipment, just like golfers do, spending money on clubs and swing aids and videos and things like that, right? Um, and again, not to not it's not the negative connotation, but um, it does really open the door to someone a a player with a famous name or just a company that believes they have something to offer, and instead of doing you know their due diligence, they copy three or four or five mouthpieces have them scanned 
have someone else make them, put their name on it, put on some snazzy pictures and a YouTube video, and then they're in business, you know? And, you know, we have, as musicians, we have, we don't have enough time to research, right? Um, a lot of it, another comparison is like the information disparity if, you're, if you need a good lawyer, right? If you need a lawyer and you go to Yelp or go to the phone book and you're like, what's the difference between this lawyer is gonna charge me $15,000 and this lawyer that's gonna charge me one, like, do we know what their knowledge is and what they, like you don't? And with mouthpieces and with a trumpet equipment, you see all these websites and all these Facebook posts and stuff, and they all basically look the same. And so, okay, let's choose one, buy a mouthpiece and see if it works or choose this and buy a horn. And because of that, there's several businesses that have opened up practically overnight that all of a sudden are, are established, you know, again, nothing wrong with it. And if they, they're doing it for the right reasons and they're helping players, more power to them. Like we used to have a, a mouthpiece advisor on our website and it was like, people loved it. And it was like, if you saw the statistics, like our mouthpiece advisor got hundreds of thousands of views a week and everything else, like how to play the trumpet or an article or, a you know, a podcast episode got five, you know, but people just wanted to go through <laughs> that compared what is, you know, if I play this and I play that. And I mean, I designed that probably 17 or 18 years ago. And I mean, it was intensive just with the mouthpiece makers there at the time. And I looked, when we redid our website, I looked to redo the advisor again. And I started doing a search and I was like, there's no way I could even begin to use any sort of database of mouthpieces and sizes and compare to ours because there was, I mean, literally millions of combinations to account for. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm sure you guys get it. I know I get it on the phone. I, you know, I'm playing such and such mouthpieces, you know, this, 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 and this model, you know, and I was like, I'm sorry, I've never seen one. <laughs> you know, can you relate it to yeah. something else or send it in to analyze? Because it's just like there's no way. I mean, I'm in the business to know this stuff, and I still can't even. It gets let alone it gets a so teacher it, or a high school kid. You know. Yeah, it gets confusing. You know, with like all the different numbering systems, uh, especially. You know, we we carry a wide variety of mouthpieces, and and all the numbering systems are different, and they all have their own. And somebody will come in and say, well, I play a, uh, you know, BZ149. And I'm like, I, I, let me, let me Google it. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, like, or I'm playing, I don't even know the maker sometimes. It's like, yeah, whatever. Send it in. We'll analyze it and add it to our database. But I, I used to spend a lot of time in the old cancel mouthpiece comparator thing. And you imagine if we'd populated that now? I mean, geez. oh, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's already, it's raising my blood pressure already. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me lighten john's blood pressure a little bit here so we we had a question um this is coming from ken this came from our newsletter it says what is your favorite moment at bob reeves brass Ooh. oh man there's so many there's so many because i mean first of all i love traveling and i love people and you know if i had the best part of my job is getting to go on a plane or car car ride and show up in someone's music store like yours is jo yours josh or you know a, a convention or whatever i mean i've, I've done a i've done a, a pop-up shop in a guy's studio in germany uh you know outside of his garden and he's making homemade potato salad while we're sitting there doing alignments in his little recording studio trumpet <laughs> studio eating homemade home-baked pretzels and potato salad and you know, try, you know i love that kind of stuff and I don't want to single anyone out because I love every place I've, I've been and the people I've hung out with. Um, one, one of the, I think the first or second week at the shop, right? I, uh, you know, knew I was the guy answering the phones and making lead pipe swabs back when we actually like 
actually made them in the shop and had to do the cord and burn the cord so it melts and all that stuff. And uh, I picked up the phone and, uh, you know, Bob Reeves Brass, this is John. Hi, John, this is Doc Severinsen. Wow. Now, like at that time, I knew a lot of people worked for, you know, had gone through the shop. I knew Doc was a previous customer, but I also knew my dad and was thinking that maybe my dad was prank calling me because I got a new job. And, uh, <laughs> and it, like, I had never met Doc, Doc before. And I was like, no, Doc's ever like, he couldn't sound like a good old boy like that. Like, there's no way someone answers the phone that way. Right. But, you know, then I'm also like, I had the fear of Bob and the new job. I didn't want to get fired my first week. And so I was like, and then also I thought, well, if it is my dad, then I'll put him through to Bob Reeves. Uh, because then he'll have to talk his way out of the fact that he was prank calling me. So I said, hey, Doc, you know, thanks for calling. Hold on one second. Let me get Bob. And long story short was it was actually Doc. And wow. <laughs> so I'm thankful that I didn't try to, like, uh, you know, catch my dad into some kind of prank call. Uh, but that also started a, a wonderful relationship with Doc. Unfortunately, he never came into the shop during my time here. He always did stuff through mail and at conventions. And, you know, I was able to interview him for the podcast uh, which I'm really grateful for. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll always remember that first call. And, but that also instilled in me the importance of where I worked, you know, because um, I had to handle calls like that. You know, I'm thinking like Lou Soloff and Alan Rubin, you know, the folks I got to either meet here in person or talk to on the phone. Um, you know, it's kind of sobering, but also really, you know, realizing that, Hey, when these this caliber caliber of player needs help or needs something, who do they turn to? And realize, you know, we're not just we're not just pocket mouthpieces. You know, we're actually serving a purpose and helping progress music. You know, because those players are recording every day, or were, and you know, this generation are certainly doing the same. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a, we had a question that came in through the chat here. This is from Noah. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier about recordings and that sort of thing, but the homogenization of sound here. How much of the homogenization of sound is due to the factors that aren't players, so conductors, engineers, and that sort of thing? You know, where does that kind of meet? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't think you're asking for an exact figure. I mean, I think it's a combination, obviously. Um, you know, and it kind of is a, you know, circular thing where one thing affects the other you know how we're listening affects you know the accuracy of what we need and the fact that you know live musicians need to get as close to a perfect recording as possible nowadays because people hear electronic music that is perfectly in tune perfectly in time that sort of thing so they you know the listener expects a certain level um so without naming names but some of the famous orchestral recordings where a note is really out of tune but very musical mm -hmm is not going to fly as much today. Um, so, I mean, we can think of it as, well, the, the, the bar, uh, the standard of technique is raising, um, but on the same token, that is taking away because I think players are playing safer in a lot of respects, certainly for recordings. Right. Um, but um, yeah. And then, then that the equipment follows because the demands of the job change. So the equipment follows in order to get, I would say generalization, but a lot of times when you make, equipment play better in tune the trade-off is either flexibility to color or nuance the sound 
you know, because it locks you in to us. The instrument wants to lock you into a place, but then also the colors and the sound. Um, and that's arguable. You know, some people say, well, if something plays in tune with itself, all of a sudden you get more harmonics. But, you know, I've played on horns that are designed to play perfectly in tune. And it sounds like pushing a, you know, a trumpet button on a synthesizer. You know, it's, there's no character in the sound. Um, so, yeah, I think the short answer is, yeah, kind of it's circular. So part of it's, the players uh, responding to the demands of the job and the demands of the music director or orchestra, which also is the demands of the listener because of how they're listening and what they're expecting. Just like we all have to ship next day, like Amazon, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> you know, yeah. in the seventies, Bob could ship a mouthpiece in six months and the player would be happy. And, you know, nowadays <laughs> a customer, a customer makes and places an order. In fact, I had two of these calls today, you know, a customer places an order. I said, okay, we're going to go make your mouthpiece. It'll ship in, you know, a relatively short time, like three to five business days to make your mouthpiece from scratch and ship it. And they're like, what? It's not going to ship today? <laughs> I get, you know, it's just, and yeah. it's not their fault. They have this expe expectation now set up by technology. Yeah. So, so that leads into a, a really great question that I have here for the next uh, question. If you could change one misconception in the brass community about mouthpieces, what would that be? Oh, I'm here for this. So Bob Reeves, and this is, I don't, I, I he had to have done this on purpose. Uh, one of his talks, he stood up in front of everyone and said, I've got two words for you. There's no effing airflow in the trumpet. <laughs> you know, and everyone just kind of like stared at him for a minute, you know, and, and that, that's, that's exactly it. And I mean, one of my favorite videos on our YouTube channel is the one where I play, I mean, it's gimmicky for YouTube views. Honestly, but it also proves, <laughs> well, I'll be honest, but you know, I'm playing two trumpets at once, one with air, just because I need an escape for the air I need to buzz my lips. And then the other trumpet is sounding with absolutely no airflow going through it, you know, and this kind of comes full circle to what we were talking about much earlier in terms of the counterintuitiveness of equipment versus what we feel. Uh, there is a famous study or a, a, a experiment done uh, years ago, where a player took a puff of a cigarette or a cigar, blew it into a, a brass instrument, then started playing. And it was more than a minute before the smoke started coming out the bell. Yeah. You know, now when we're playing quadruple forte, you know, pick your note, does it feel like air is just flowing out the bell? Yes, it does, but it physically is not. What you're feeling is the energy you're putting into the instrument and then the air that's already in there and the standing wave then exiting the bell and that means like you know as you watch the really great players a uh, jim manley a good friend of mine an amazing player he said look john the difference between players that can play amazing range and bud herseth who can you know play in his 80s and the orchestra or jay friedman who's you know up there been in Chicago, how can he play at his age this the volume and you know the the demands of the chicago symphony how can he do it well, he can do it because he's lifting five pounds while all the rest of us are lifting 200 pounds. You know, he's he's matching. He's having the equipment, the mouthpiece, the horn work sympathetically with him and with the music. He's not just putting as much air as he can through, you know. Um, and so that's it. That's why we have drawers full of mouthpieces, we, we meaning trumpet players, because we've tried to get more air through them. So we've opened up the back door. We've opened up the bore. And I would say a vast majority of the time, opening things up, make things feel more stuffy, 
which then makes you feel like you have to put more air through and it's actually the exact opposite. So yeah, that, that video. And the coolest thing about that video, if I may toot my own horn, is not, is not the two trumpets, but in that video, I blow out a candle without air. I pull the tuning slide out and I have a candle at the end of the lead pipe. And there's a mouthpiece in there that has a, you know, a, a latex cover. So no air is physically going into the lead pipe. And just me exciting that frequency and that energy is enough to blow out a candle on the other side of the lead pipe. You know, it's like a, it's a magic trick, but that proves what's going on in the instrument is not air coming from the lungs to here through the lips into the instrument. It's exciting that standing wave. So does that mean when you teach your young students that you say, don't use air or don't support? No, no, that like teaching is a whole separate thing, but when it comes to thinking about your equipment, you really need to at least have that basic understanding that we're dealing with acoustic principles, not airflow and fluid dynamics, which will probably upset a lot of people in our industry. Didn't 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 Bob make people mouthpiece? are writing emails right now? Sorry to interrupt. I'm like, <laughs> I'm getting emails right now. Uh, so anyway, sorry to interrupt. Am, am I, I? I might be not remembering it properly, but did Bob make years ago a mouthpiece? that had like a rim that was kind of bolted onto it with a diaphragm, like a condom or something on there that just vibrated. Yeah. Okay, it's that one, okay. So he made a he made an early version. Um, and I should mention, I mean, this isn't novel. So we got this idea from um, Watkins, uh, Smith, Richard Smith from Smith and Watkins, you know, and as a trombone, he's got a great video where he actually plugs his mouthpiece up to like a, um, a drill that, so you can like flutter tongue as the drills, I mean, the thing's amazing. But he did it with a trombone mouthpiece. Uh, so we, we based our idea starting with that, but then we expanded it further. So the original mouthpiece Bob and Ko made probably about 20 years ago, uh, pre-YouTube, when we can do anything with it. Uh, and then a few years ago, Brett and I decided to make one. And we actually learned from it. Uh, and we talk about that in the video where we we the mouthpiece played in the upper register really well. Like I could play a high C, and even though I'm hitting latex and no air is going through my feedback is the same as playing a high c on a regular mouthpiece on a regular trumpet but when i get lower into the staff it was different and uh brett brilliantly realized that you know we're used to the feedback of the cup with a back bore we just had a tube coming out the side so he made a back bore section and we played the back put the back bore section on and now it played markedly better both in the upper register and we got the middle register but the low register still didn't work and then we realized, well, we're dealing with only, you know, three and a half inches of length. So we're only setting up certain wavelengths sympathetically with my lips. So once we added right. four feet of tube, now I could play the whole range of the instrument down to, you know, pedals. And yeah, that's where the two trumpets comes in. So, but I can, I'll, it feels like I'm playing the trumpet, basically. And I still didn't get any gigs, so go figure. <laughs> John, I, I really want to thank you for, for coming on tonight or this afternoon for you, uh, time difference. Um, it was great having you in the shop uh, in Brett, and it's been great having you online. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks to everybody out there who tuned in to this month's episode. Um, you know, it's been great to chat with John here from Bob, uh, Bob Reeves Brass. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. This is fun. Yeah, man. It's awesome. Be in the hot seat. <laughs> well, you're good at it. 
Um, also, everyone, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to our socials uh, at virtuosity underscore Boston uh, and at J Landris Brass, and as well as at Bob Reeves Brass, where uh, you know we talked about it earlier. John has some great podcasts with some great musicians. Uh, you have links in there, I do believe, too, to that stuff. Uh, I, I recommend people check that out in the YouTube uh, videos. Details will be coming out soon for our fifth episode of Long Tones. Stay tuned to our socials for more. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and being a part of this evening. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. Have a great one. <laughs>